there. This is Dennis Anywell with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I think art and creativity make the world go around, make life worth living. So I love talking to people who are doing those kind of things. Um, today, my guest is a filmmaker, Peter McDowell. He has a documentary that's going to be playing at the Frameline Film Festival in San Francisco in the big historic Castro Theater. It's called Jimmy in Saigon, um, but it also will be available for streaming um, the week after the festival. So you can watch it from wherever you are in the U.S. Um, it's a really interesting documentary, and I was so excited to talk to Peter about it. Uh, before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that there are now two ways to listen to this podcast. You can do it as you always do on your favorite podcast app, or you can become a subscriber to DNR Studios. It's a group that I've joined up with, and for twelve ninety five a month, you'll get access to my show 48 hours earlier, plus all of these other terrific shows like the Derek and Romaine show, Perfect Date with my friend Tom Goss, The Focus Group. There's a whole uh, array of great shows there. And to learn more about that, go to dnrstudios.com. Also, I have a voicemail now for this podcast, so if you ever want to comment on anything about the show, leave a message and I may play it. The number is one 647 9653 all right, that's enough of the plugs. Here is my interview with Peter McDowell. Joining me now over Zoom, it's the filmmaker Peter McDowell. His movie is Jimmy in Saigon. And Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Dennis. I've had the heat is on in Saigon in my head from Miss Saigon all day. But it doesn't really have to do with your movie. But um, I don't know. I blame you for it. So, I've heard other people say that. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, just thinking about Saigon and and so much of your movie has to do with that place. So tell people about Jimmy and Saigon. What do you say when say when people say what's this about? Well, you know, it's about I suppose a, a typical Midwest family in the sixties and seventies. I'm the youngest of six children, and my brother Jimmy was the oldest of six. He died when I was five years old in 1972. He was only 24. So I grew up with uh, kind of a shadowy knowledge of him. I didn't really remember him because he was mostly in the army or gone or in college when I was a little kid. Uh, we were almost 20 years apart, but we were full siblings. So I kind of grew up with this um, this hazy knowledge of him. And as a kid, I didn't really understand how he died. Um, he, uh, but then later on, as as time went on, I learned more and more about him, and I became increasingly intrigued but also confused and uh, started asking my family a lot of questions. And the film is really about my search to try to find out more about his life and death. He died, he lived and died in somewhat mysterious circumstances in Saigon. And that's, uh, that's what motivated me to start this journey 12 years ago. So I started the making the film uh, 12 years ago. And sometimes with documentaries, most of the story is there before people start. Like they want to make a documentary about Watergate or whatever it is. This is something you're making it and you don't really know where it's going to go. You don't even know if yeah. you really have a movie. What yeah. is it that fuels you to do that? You know, I think it's just this, um, when you're a little kid, you don't really know anything else besides what you experience. And, and when you have lost in your family, it's, it's really, you know, intense, especially a 24 year old brother. It's sort of, uh, you know, uh, I've said before, it's like a black hole in the family. It's this, it's this deep hurt, this deep wound. And, um, I kind of thought, oh, well, I guess that's what life's like, or all families are like that. But as I grew up, I, I started realizing that it was, um, you know, it, there are a lot of families that experience this and, um, and we didn't really talk about it very much. We didn't talk about my brother's death and we certainly didn't, it's not really my parents' fault, but they didn't do a lot of research about his life and death. And, 
it was really hard to do that in the 70s. You know, there was no internet. There was no real way of doing research. Even making phone calls was difficult. So, you know, fast forward to 2010, when all of a sudden I had a bunch of tools to kind of dig back into the past, which I think is is something that we're finding nowadays is people are taking a second look at, um, at, at legacies. Uh, you know, the thing that one of the things that really intrigued me was the thought that maybe my brother might've been gay. You know, I came out when I was 17, um, in 1984, and it wasn't until maybe 10 years ago, 10 years later, that my mom said, you know, I, I always kind of wondered if your brother Jimmy maybe was gay. And I said, I, I can't believe you didn't tell me that. Why do you yeah. say that? And she kind of like reeled back a little bit and said, oh, I don't know, maybe not. So she kind of planted the seed that that was certainly part of it. You know, I had a couple I had, I had a couple, um, things that guided me. One was that search. One was to find out more about his death and one was just, I know who he was, what made him tick as a, as a person. Yeah. It just felt something like, like something you needed to do. Um, you and I have something in common, which is we're the, both the last of six. Oh, and your movie has made me start to think about what was the dynamic in my family before I came along? I've never really thought about that. I've started thinking about it in the last few years a little bit more. And how did that affect our family? How did it affect my life? What was my parents' love story like? They never seemed like they had a love story. And I had an older brother who sort of died in a kind of tragic way as well, who was the oldest. And it never occurred to me that he might be gay. And I still don't think he could have been, but it is that kind of mystery of like, what was going on before I came into this picture? Because there's 20, 30 years of life in this home before you enter it. And it, it just made me think about my own, my own stuff. You know, we had so much material. We had like 70 or 80 hours of footage and we had to call it down to a 90 minute film. And there was, you know, there was a couple of scenes that, that didn't make it into the final cut, but one of them was me talking about, you know, my oldest, older brothers and sisters had this whole story before I even arrived. They went on family vacations all around the country to, you know, all the national parks. And then when I came in, they were like, yeah, we've done that. We're not going to do that. I'm like, but wait, what about me? Can't I do that too? Right. There was an eight year gap between me and the next. I really think I was like the last sperm, like just (laughs) hobbling to the egg. And so that dynamic of a house full of kids running around, that was, I was kind of like an only child in some ways and that I spent most of my upbringing, uh, you know, without siblings in the house. It's different. Absolutely. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things that jumped out at me is this story is also about America being in Vietnam and the footage of the draft numbers being called and Nixon literally saying to the, the American people, North Vietnam cannot humiliate the United States and just chill, the chillingness of that. Like it was like, oh, we're going to win. We're going to send all these kids to die because our egos are going to be bruised if we don't. It's just like toxic masculinity, like all that crazy, like American bravado. We can't, we're going to just keep sending in these kids because we can't admit we made a mistake. Um, what did you learn about the Vietnam war separate from Jimmy? What did, what was your, I get this sick feeling when I think about it and you must have that times a hundred. Yeah. It's always been a source of, of both fascination and sadness. Um, I became pretty obsessed with it. I became obsessed with the Vietnam War in popular culture, and I watched a bunch of movies like, you know, Apocalypse Now and The Deer Hunter. And one of my favorites is the movie Hair, which I which I quote in the film. You right. Know, scenes from it, which was a more, um, to me, a more palatable version because it was a musical. But 
you know, I had this very, very sad ending with someone being sent to Vietnam and, and being killed. Uh, fast forward to, you know, the 10 part Ken, Ken Burns series on Vietnam, which I, I have to say I forced myself to watch and I wouldn't say forced cause it's not good. It's very well done, but it's so painful. And, um, each episode is pretty long. I had to watch a half an episode at a time. <laughs> That's um, all you could take a half an hour at a time. Oh my God. It's so much, so many atrocities and just, you know, just horrifying. But I would say that when you go to Vietnam, and I, I went twice, the first time I went in 2016, you are greeted immediately with a very bustling, cheery, happy, enthusiastic, young country. You know, a lot of young people, super happy. Um, they don't care about the war. They don't have anything against Americans. They're thrilled just to have us there. And it, it's just a very lovely place. So, I mean, I think in a way it's very healing for any American to just go to Vietnam and to sort of see and feel what, what it's like there now, of course, not to forget what happened, but um, to know that, you know, resilience is possible for sure. We learn in the movie that Jimmy made movies like as a teenager, there was one that was sort of legendary in your family. Do you feel like that interest is something that connects you, the two of you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my family, uh, we grew up with a strong visual and performing arts background. My father uh, was a professional classical musician. So I grew up with that in my life. He was a clarinet professor and player. And my mom was a painter and writer. And, um, so I, I totally grew up with the arts and photography. And, um, I first experimented with a little super eight camera when I was a kid, um, made a few little films. And then in grad school, in the 90s, I made some short films that ended up getting into film festivals, including Frameline. So I'm actually a Frameline alum. I had a couple short films there in the 90s. And uh, and at that point, um, I was in love with film, and I really didn't like video. I didn't like the way video looked in the early 90s. Right. Um, it was before HD came along. Sure. Yeah. So I kind of, I knew I wanted to make this magnum opus of Jimmy and Saigon, but I didn't, I couldn't see doing it on 16 millimeter or 35 millimeter. Cause it's just so difficult. You need a big crew. It's really expensive. And I didn't see doing it on video. So I sort of shelved it. I put it on a, you know, a shelf in my mind. Um, you, you're like, I can't do this without it looking crappy. So I can't do it. I'm not going to do can't, it. Exactly. And then 2010, <laughs> yeah. um, I started realizing that HD, I started seeing all these films and I was like, is this shot on film? And they're like, no HD. And I was like, Oh, Oh wow. I mean, it looks like film. So right. Um, I completely recalibrated my brain in 2010 and said like, okay, I can do this, uh, if it's HD video. And, um, I used, you know, famously used like the last $2,000 I had in 2010 to buy an HD, a used HD camera and sound equipment. I was living in Brooklyn and I set out to travel the world to meet everybody who ever knew my brother. Wow. That is amazing. And it, and it's, and it's all these years later and you've got this finished thing and you're finally showing it to the world. Did you ever feel like giving up? Did you ever get really discouraged about it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, that's kind of a theme. And, you know, one of the themes in the movies is just how hard it was to trudge on, especially since some of the research I did took so long to bear fruit. I, I came out with, I came up with a major discovery in 2018 that I won't, um, divulge on this podcast to, uh, um, out of, uh, out of the desire not to, to have any spoilers. But, um, up until that point, I, I certainly kept thinking, is it, is it really worth it? And 
I raised all the money myself from donors and I kept thinking, my God, what if I don't finish this film? My donors are going to be so upset. Um, but you know, would they I, ask you about it? Like at the barbecue, you're like, Hey, Hey, you know, I sent you that 25 bucks. What's going yeah. on? <laughs> well, you know, the would you be like, I can't avoid, I have to avoid them. They donated, you know, like what's yeah. that dynamic like? Well, I used to tell people that the average documentary film takes seven years to make. Right. That was really useful in the first seven years. But right. then, then once I got to <laughs> I year, 17. Yeah. Yeah. When I got to eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, um, but no, we, we did it in 12 years. And, you know, um, I, I have since become a member of the documentary film community really worldwide, which I didn't even know existed. And I think it really, um, you know, one of the, there's a lot of side benefits, obviously, of the pandemic that nobody would have ever predicted. But one are these Zoom meetings of people with like minds all over the world. And, and now I go to two Zoom meetings per week of documentary filmmakers, and there's literally hundreds of us around the world who participate in these meetings. And, you know, I think everybody kind of agrees. You say, I say, oh, my documentary took 12 years. And they're like, oh, okay, yeah, mine's taking about that long too. So it's it's not an unusual thing. So what kind of things do people share in these meetings? Resources, tips? Um, yeah. What are they like? Moral support too. I mean, documentary is... Um, can be very um, emotionally challenging. A lot of people do personal documentaries about their lives and about their families, um, a lot of times involving trauma or difficult situations that have to be replayed over and over and over again, month after month, year after year in the filming and the editing process. Um, my brother, John, who um, is all, obviously also Jimmy's brother, is our film composer. He wrote, He's a professional film scorer, and he wrote the soundtrack to Jimmy and Sagan and and he knew Jimmy a lot better than I did because John was, I think, 17 when Jimmy died. Right. And, uh, you know, John said, yeah, it's really, really hard to watch. You know, when you're writing a soundtrack, you have to watch the same scenes like hundreds and hundreds of times. And, um, you know, just to see our mother being distraught and to see this this pain. Um, so, you know, we talk about those kind of things in the filmmaker groups. We talk about fundraising and distribution. Distribution is, you know is a real challenge. I would say like as the world heads towards Marvel movies, more Marvel movies and more Marvel movies. And then as documentaries head towards, um, celebrity, uh, true crime, climate crisis, you know, it gets harder and harder to fund and to distribute, uh, personal documentaries like the one, I think there's an, there's a, there's an audience for it. There's an appetite for it. People, you know, love these and are really excited, but it's just, uh, you know, the industry doesn't see it as, as, a, as a marketing uh, cash cow. Sure. You mentioned your mother, and she is such an interesting person in the film because she's very intelligent. The, the vocabulary and the way she expresses herself, it's like, oh, the, the, she's very smart, and she's read a lot, or she writes. Like, you said she was a writer. I could tell that she was a writer. But there's also things she doesn't want to know. There's things that she doesn't. So it's this like this sort of duality of like fiercely intelligent, but don't talk about this or X, you know. Yeah. So how was it to navigate all of that with her? Yeah, well, she's a favorite. People love her in the movie, and you know, obviously, she's she's a favorite in the world, in our hometown, and and with all of us. She's uh, my mom is 97. She's about to turn 98. She's born in 1924. Wow. Um, she is in great shape mentally um, and physically. Super sharp in the movie. Super yeah, sharp. Super sharp. Yeah, she knows more about, you know, current events and politics than I do, and she reads, you know, voraciously. Um, yeah, she's <clears throat> she's not afraid to say that the 
she's also very emotional. She's actually kind of the perfect documentary um, subject because she's very honest and um, and yet she is emotional the way a, a talented actress would be, you know, and she's not acting, she's just being herself. So um, it's, it's a pleasure to chat with her about this and to, I felt bad, you know, I, I, at a certain point I was like, I don't want to make you cry anymore. Um, it's right. Hard. She's a mother yeah. who lost a, a child. Yeah. 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 Um, what does your family think of the movie now that it's done? Was it healing for the family as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I think my family's discovering it one by one. My brother John obviously worked on the soundtrack, so he, you know, really knows it backwards and forwards. My sister Anne just saw it at a festival and and really enjoyed it, sent me some nice words. And um, my other two siblings have yet to see it in its final form. Um, but I would say that uh, people ask me that question. I um, I would say that, you know, I feel like we're all getting getting along with each other better than ever, and I don't think it's because of the film. But I do think that the notion of um, not avoiding certain topics or subject matters um, does help us get along better as a family. And, and maybe the fact that this was kind of a, um, a deep, hidden, secret uh, conversation in our family and kind of airing it out um, hopefully has helped. Right. In the, in the film, you use the lyric from Hair, Let the Sunshine In yeah. as a sort of parallel to like, let's quit hiding this stuff and it's not, it's hurting us in a way. That lyric always really moved me so much because, you know, as a kid growing up in the early seventies, there was sadness. There was sadness about Vietnam. There was sadness about all these terrible things that happened. I mean, these terrible assassinations of, of, uh, of leaders in the sixties. And, um, and I think that, that people felt beaten down and there was this mournfulness, but also, um, there was a hope and there was a fight left. And that's why I love that song, Let the Sunshine In, because I think it's saying like, um, we are at a crucial, at least they were at that time. And I think we are now too at a crucial period in history where um, things are really challenging and we can either let it, let it crumble or we can try to try to um, shed some light on the situation and, and make it better. Yeah. Um, your mother said something in the film. I believe it was her line. I wrote it down. I think I hugged you so tight. I transferred some of my guilt onto you. Wow. Some of my grief. Oh, my grief, yeah. my grief onto yeah. you. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's an intense idea. And that she would have the insight to sort of put it in that way. Yeah. I mean, I remember being a little kid and being really bonded to my mom, but also feeling you know, once I kind of was aware of, of what depression meant or what sadness meant that, that, that she was, um, hurting, she was suffering and, um, that I felt, you know, happy to oblige in, in cheering her up. But, um, but I think, you know, it definitely, um, it's not just her. I think this, the, the atmosphere in the home was, um, to me, it felt, it felt sad at times. And, um, I think I absorbed people's grief. Yeah. Right. There was a heaviness. Mm-hmm. Um, you use animation at times in the movie in really effective ways. Talk about that decision and how you created it. Yeah. Well, I've, I've always loved animation. I, I love multimedia um, uh, art. I used to be an opera producer. I produced operas uh, and other performing arts events for many years. And I love the combination of um, music theater, image, art, um, you know, this, this story is about, um, somebody who died 50 years ago. In fact, literally 50 years ago, I think 
one of the things you know to mention right now is that this this month represents um, the month where we're recording this re- represents the 50th anniversary of my brother's death. Um, that that we don't have footage of a lot of there's a lot of things we don't have footage of. So I originally had this idea of sort of recreating a lot of things. I don't really like recreations with actors so much in documentaries, but I love the idea of the sort of like um, impressionistic kind of wistful pen and ink um, style animation. So that's what we settled on. um, And we decided to do some at the beginning, some in the middle and some at the end of the film to just add a little bit of uh, a feeling. Well, you really stuck the ending. It's, I don't want to say what it is, but it's, it's, it took my breath away. I love it. Yeah. Um, you wrote, you said this, I wanted Jim's life to have credibility. Mm-hmm. And when I think about that, it was sort of like he was right about things. He wanted to be a conscientious objector. He wanted to explore his own feelings freely. Like he wasn't wrong. And I think when we think of people in that era that passed away or that used drugs or whatever, I think we think they're bad, but he was right about life. Mm-hmm. Wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I went into this whole project um, in terms of, you know, one of the subjects that we tackle is drug use. And I think when I grew up in my family, the feeling was drugs are bad, period. We don't do them. We don't talk about them. They're terrible. And um, I get that. But I also feel like he was from a generation where people were saying, hey, maybe not all drugs are bad at all times. And maybe there's ways of, of exploring how they, you know, how they can calm us down or open us up. And, you know, and it's pretty amazing if you look at it's happening like right now with, you know, the legalization of marijuana as well as psychedelic drugs. I mean, a lot of stuff that hippies in the seventies would be like, they would just be in disbelief to know that a lot of the stuff is legalized now. Not only is it legalized, but it's seen as medicinal or helpful. And so, um, you know, when you talk about he was right, like, you know, I think he saw that there was, um, you know, and it's not only drugs, it's also exploring other countries, exploring other um, facets of life besides the 1950s post-war. I mean, he's, he, my brother was born in 1948, so he's classic post-war middle American kid who was supposed to be, you know, white and straight and, you know, um, Catholic. And, and I think it was oppressive for him. I think he had to he had to get out of that. And, um, and in Vietnam, you know, partially because it was a totally different country, but also because it was a war zone, it was a little bit of a free for all, like anything goes. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I think I see him as being unlucky. That's like the main word that I use to describe his death. I think a lot of people, um, a lot of people experiment with drugs and are fine, you know, and then, he, yeah, you know, his death, as you will see in the film, there was some, some relevance to drugs, but he was, uh, he was unlucky as I think some people are who passed away too, too early. Well, he also wrote in one of his letters that he wanted to experience hedonistic pleasures like never before. I was like, yeah, way to go. Like that's so, um, kind of such an intriguing tease for like, what, what does that mean? Right. And that was probably something that you were very curious about. Absolutely. I mean, I think that also as a gay person, um, when we have, uh, I guess speak for myself, but when I had my coming out process, it was about realizing that, um, that, um, 
looking for what you really want, including pleasure in life is not a bad thing and you shouldn't feel guilty about it ever really, you know, as long as you're not hurting someone else. And I think that notion was extremely foreign back then. Like people just did not get that. And, um, you know, he was immersed in the society that had just this, this cornucopia of amazing food and, um, sights and smells and sounds and, and people. And, um, and I think he just, uh, decided to to go with the wave. Yeah. Also, was the last kid kind of like me, and then also having this in your family, did you feel this pressure to be a really good boy? Like, I'm going to be a good boy? Because, like, I kind of felt that in mine. Like, maybe because I was gay, like, that was how I was going to um, make up for it or something. But I did have that thing of, like, I'm a good boy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, um... Not only was did I feel like I always had to be the good the good kid and other people were allowed to be bad <laughs> in our family, but I also felt like I was like a little um, precious uh, glass ornament that could be broken at any time because um, I would I always joke uh, although it's not too much of a joke that when I was growing up I would say oh I'm going to the corner to mail a letter and my family would say be careful be careful you know I would. After a while, I had to tell my family, stop saying, be careful when I do anything. Um, I know you lost a son, but like, I have the right to get on an airplane and ride a bike and live my life. And, um, you know, there's, uh, there was an experience since I went to Saigon twice. Since Saigon, you know, it's a little bit wild west. And right. I was, um, they have, you know, Uber motorcycles there, which is where you basically, hire an Uber and they come and pick you up and you ride on, on the back of their motorcycle. And I, I got addicted to it. I loved it. It is such a great way to see Saigon. And I kept thinking, well, my family wouldn't like this, but you only live once and I'm going to do it. <laughs> I, I love that. You appear on camera a fair amount in the movie, but you're also traveling. You're running around. Do you think about how you look and you're like, you know what, I'm going to do this little on camera thing in the morning when I've rested. Or do, are you just like getting the story? You know, or do you think about like, oh man, I'm going to look like I haven't slept in four weeks. <laughs> um, it's, um, you know, it's, it's a challenge to see yourself on camera. I would say that, um, that the editing experience is, it is, it can be forgiving in the sense that like, when you have a lot of hours, um, you can, um, you see other ways of sort of presenting yourself. And, um, you know, I think with, um, with my first shoot in Vietnam, I had to be the, we were on a shoestring budget. We people, sometimes when I talk to people in these documentary um, film groups, they mention all these job titles for films that I've never heard of. Cause right. I never did them. Right. You I know? did. Oh, you're like, Oh, I did that. Oh, I did that. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. did that. Yeah. I had a camera person in Vietnam who lived there who I hired, I had a sound guy. It was the first time I ever had a sound guy separate from a cameraman. And then, I had a government uh, official that was required and then I had a translator and that was it. And I, I did every other aspect of the shoot. So I was like both on camera, also kind of managing the whole situation. And I think you just do it. And part of the um, aesthetic of documentaries, at least the kind of documentaries that I like, part of the aesthetic is the sloppiness is like, Oh, that didn't go like we thought, you know, and I, and I kind of like showing that really on camera because I think it really is endearing and it brings people closer. Um, there are a lot of increasingly, I find a lot of documentaries that are extremely slick. Um, they look perfect. They're slick in every way. 
And I'm not saying anything bad about that, but it just wasn't my aesthetic. It wasn't what I was going for. And I think that there's probably some film festivals that we didn't get into who were looking for these, like, you know, very, very flashy, shiny, glossy images, which is, which was not, not my intention. And it wasn't in my budget um, because I, I funded this whole film myself through fundraising. Well, you tracked down some people in Vietnam and what's interesting to me about that is not only do you have to explain who you are, what you're doing and who Jimmy was, but you have to bring up your sexuality. You have to bring up gay stuff. And that feels mm-hmm. like one more thing, right? Like, oh, they, they, they're going to talk to me, but how are they going to feel about this? What was that mm-hmm. like? Well, you know, it's interesting. There is, again, without giving too many spoilers, there was a scene where I have a choice to come out or not, and I choose at the moment not to. Um, and I, um, uh, there was one review that sort of questioned that, and, and I, I don't think the reviewer was, was a gay person because I was like, uh, you know, any gay person kind of knows that you don't come, you can't come out a hundred percent of the time in all circumstances, always, because you have to kind of read the room and figure out what's going on. And it's also a personal choice. Like, you know, you are not required to come out at all times as a gay right. person in every situation. So, you know, I think, um, and I also think in, in recent years, as we become a little bit more attuned to, um, to identity politics, um, I'm starting to to feel um, more assured that I have some options in terms of how I live my life, and I don't have to I don't have to live up to someone else's um, idea of what a gay person should be or should do. Um, and I think that's in, uh, increasingly true. And also, you're there to do you're there on a mission to get this story right, and you don't yeah. want to. And it's hard enough to find people and also get them to be in. Like it's just one more thing that you have to think about. Um, what would your advice be to somebody who is trying to find somebody in the world? Because you track <laughs> wow. people down, or you try. You spend years trying. Yeah. Well, I always tell people I'm good at it. You know, if they say I can't find this person, I'm like, oh, I'm good at that. I think it's worth it. I mean, that's that's my my general advice. I think it's. I'm a big tracker downer of people. What are and, the tools that helped you the most? Um, is well, there a, like find that person.com or something like that? Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of um, web services that you can pay for where they can find people. And that is ultimately how I found the crucial person that I was looking for. It took years and, and kind of like different ways of typing in the information but, um, but yeah, there's, uh, I mean, there's rocket reach and there's a couple other ones, but uh, I can't remember. It was a different one that I used, but, um, but yeah, I mean, also I, I really encourage people to take their family archives seriously. Um, sometimes I hear people throwing away or dumping family letters or family photos. Um, of course that's your prerogative, but like, thank God my mom was a pack rat because, she has everything, you know, she has every possible thing related to my brother, all of his letters, you know, all of his belongings, although we didn't have very many at the time, but some crucial belongings and, and tons and tons of photos. And so that archive became, you know, in some ways like the core of the film. So, um, yeah, I, I really do encourage people to, especially, I mean, I have another friend who just wrote me and he said that he has a, um, a relative who's passed away who was like an uncle her great uncle who was clearly gay um who lived a kind of a sad life in the midwest and and my friend is 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 trying to research 
um, this relative's life. And, uh, and I said, I said, this is what I said to him, go to the oldest people that, you know, who knew him and interview them on camera or on audio. I think that's probably the biggest advice I would give is like, talk to the oldest people, you know, who know, who knew people, because you can, um, cause once they're gone, you know, it's, it's over. My mom has this quote where she says, um, uh, every time an old person dies, it's like a library burns down. Oh, that's very chilling, but it's so beautiful. Yeah, it's true. You were able to find the American doctor that treated Jimmy in in Vietnam. What was that like to find the, and and he remembered him. I thought that was kind of amazing out of all the people he must've treated. Yeah, it was, that was chilling as well because um, my first phone call with him was a couple years before I actually was able to get in the same room with him with the camera. But I, um, I kept trying to reach him. I, I found his name. I found he was still in practice. I had a lot of trouble reaching him. Finally, I reached him, and I said to him something like, um, Dr. Caroline, my name is Peter McDowell. Uh, at, you know, I, you treated my brother before he died in Vietnam about you know, 40 years ago, um, and that's about all he said, and he said, I remember everything. Wow. So you didn't even get the full, you didn't even get the full story out. Yeah. And I was like, uh, really? And he was like, yes, your brother came in, you know, he like, he told me the whole story and I was like, wow. Um, you know, part of, some people are like, some people also have like a great memory. Yeah. I also have some people that I interviewed in the film that said like, gosh, it was so long ago. I don't really remember details. I also had a lot of people that refused to take part in the film. That's something I don't really talk about too much in the film. I, I was, it was going to be a theme. Um, I was going to have like a whole section of the film about all the people that refused to take part. But, but at the end of the day, my editors and my producers and I decided that it was better to talk about what we did have as opposed yeah. to what we didn't have. I think that's the right call. Um, were there times you felt Jimmy with you? Did you ever have those moments where you felt, I don't know, like he was with you in a way? Absolutely. I mean, I've had that quite a bit. You know, I um, I came out in 1984 um, as gay, and it wasn't a very happy time to come out. It was just at the time where uh, HIV AIDS was hitting the Midwest, hitting the country really hard. Um, people were getting sick and dying, and I here I was just about to start dating, you know, and nobody... Not only that, but nobody knew anything. They didn't know about how it was transmitted and what you should do. So I felt very scared. I felt very alone. I didn't have gay advisors or role models or elders. And um, I did see a a movie called um, The Times of Harvey Milk around Mm -hmm. that time. And um, I felt very moved by that. And I felt um, like Harvey became a personal hero for me. And I think it was around that time, which was in college, that I really felt like if I was visited by two two spirits of, you know, people that passed away, they would be my brother Jimmy and Harvey Milk. Like, I definitely feel felt, feel both of their presence in my life um, in a very um, mild, well, you know, in a subtle sense. And, sure. Um, and part of me even thought, like, my God, like, I made it, I made it through the AIDS crisis and here I am, you know, 54 years old in 2022. And 
part of me, you know, kind of romantically thinks like it was the spirit of Jimmy that came to me and like helped me get through it and helped me, you know, make it through that difficult time in my life. Um, even though he wasn't around anymore. Um, so yeah. And then another thing was that, um, there was a crucial piece of documentation that I was missing, which was the telegram that it was his death telegram. That yeah. my parents got. And my mom kept saying like, I don't know where it is. I don't know where it is. And finally one day she said, I know where it is. And I said, okay, where is it? And she said, it's in a filing cabinet in the basement. And I went down and I came back up to her and I said, it's locked. And I said, I can't find the key. And she said, do whatever you need to do to get it open. And, you know, again, another chilling moment where I like took a hammer and a screwdriver and I felt like, unfortunately, <laughs> oh, God. I didn't have, I didn't it's have like you're the mad filmmaker now, like beating open filing cabinets. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I didn't have a camera, but, but I, I definitely felt, you know, Jimmy's spirit with me at that point, like breaking open that filing cabinet and finding not only the telegram, but a couple other like confidential documents that they had in there about him that they, you know, kind of wanted to seal away from the world uh, only, you know, just because of embarrassment, really. Wow. And you found it. It's so interesting. Your mother was so helpful, but there were also things she didn't want to know. Like it was this line she was constantly walking. Um, You talk about a revelation that you had that kind of changed the focus of the film. I don't want to give away what that was, but how did it feel when you discovered that? Because I think when you're exploring it, you're, you're looking for discovery. And this was a big one, right? Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, it, it, it was, um, it altered the course of the film. I felt really happy. I felt really sad because I, a couple things were revealed at, in that moment. Um, some happy and some sad. And, uh, and I felt really driven. I mean, I definitely felt driven to, um, as soon as possible, go and meet that person. Yeah. And, um, so, um, it was, uh, it was amazing. It was an amazing experience. And I still keep in touch with these people that I met throughout the film. And um, I'm not sure that they're all totally ready to see the film yet. Sure. I'm trying to be gentle with people um, who may not uh, totally, um, you know, the film may be jarring to them in some ways. So that's one thing that I'm going through right now is, you know, trying to determine when and how the best way is to show the film to people who were actually in it. Sure. There's a Zoom call that happens, and it's just so random to think that there's this technology called Zoom and that the people that are on this call are on it, and they're having this kind con- of... It's just so wild to think about all these years later that this conversation is happening because of you in this film, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. What's the most you cried making the movie? Was there something that... And meeting somebody or just a moment where you're like, wow, this is, this is a lot. It's hard for me to cry on camera. I wish I, I wish I did because that's what, you know, that's where the money is. You know, tears on tape, as they say in the reality TV (laughs) business, we got tears on tape. Oh, tears on tape. Yeah. Yeah. That's somebody used to say that. I don't know. Somebody I worked with, that was like code for, you know, that the, that the subject or, you know, it was more dramatic, I guess. Um, well, I mean, I guess certainly when I watch footage of my mother getting emotional or when I watch her replaying what happened that day, it's very um, challenging for me to not start crying. And especially, you know, not only when she talks about just that moment, it's that crystalline moment where everything was fine in her life. And then um, immediately it was not, you know, right. kind of 
forever. And um, so that, and of course that's very topical right now with these terrible school shootings that are going on. And, you know, of course they affect all of us, but when you think about when you know, when you know someone who is 98, who lost a child, you know, in her early fifties and is still, you know, broken up about it every day, you know, that this is not over for those. It's never going to be, it's over never going to be over. And, um, so that makes me sad. I mean, this, this week in the wake of these school shootings, I am, I have noticed that I tend to be, um, distracted and lethargic and I have to lay down a lot. And I've talked with other people that feel the same way. Like it just feels overwhelming to me. Um, I think the notion of, um, anybody losing a child is just one of the most horrendous things I can think of. So yes, that I would say that makes me emotional. Sure. And you talk about your mother having an experience at the time Jimmy was dying. That was sort of like a feeling come over her that like that blew my mind as well. Um, there's just yeah, so many she, things in the film that are that are memorable and 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 oh thanks interesting yeah she yeah. told that story many times it's very again a very um, incredible story where um, uh, the U S was was you know practically a half a day apart from Vietnam time wise and one day in in June of 1972 my mom was vacuuming and she suddenly got a surge of um, of positive feelings about Jimmy that was, she became euphoric and she said she had to sing. And, um, so she was, you know, vacuuming around the house singing at the top of her lungs and getting these like really happy feelings about Jimmy. And then the next day they got the telegram and she, she, um, reversed it back and figured out that that was just at the, about the time he was dying. So, you know, there's a very strong metaphysical thing going on with her. Wow. So wild. On a separate note, you pick some questions from the observation deck. I'm going to throw them out, oh. out to you. Yes. What movie did you see when you were too young to see it? When I was about 12, I saw two movies, um, all that jazz, Bob Fosse's all that jazz and the movie hair. And they both had a lot of like, quote unquote dirty stuff in it, but right. you know, it was super helpful to me because at that time we didn't have the internet and we right. didn't know stuff. So I remember in um all that jazz there's a scene where Bob Fosse's younger character is like being like titillated by showgirls and he has he like essentially comes in his pants. And I saw the film with my mom and my mom was like, now do you understand what that is? And I was like, Oh God, yes I do. I don't want to talk about it with you. Right. But at least my mother would have shut that down. She would not have said anything about like it would not have there would not have been a question. I was on yeah. my own with that stuff. Okay. So well that's good. It's yeah. good to know. That's how yeah. we you know it's how we find things out sure. is to, talk about them um and in hair you know they they there's a, a famous song that i quote a little bit in the film that's called sodomy and it's just a list of of dirty words sod- not dirty words sexual words right sodomy fellatio cunnilingus pederasty yeah. masturbation and i remember seeing that movie checking the move the the album out from the library and then getting a dictionary and one by one <laughs> going through every word oh oh i don't okay. know what pederast is what is that I think it's like an old fashioned term for, I think it's like a, I think it's like a pedophile kind of thing. Oh, interesting. I mean, I think it's like, I think it's an old fashioned word for, for, you know, 
anal sex or something All like right. that. But yeah, it's gone. It's but, it's out of style, whatever it is. It's out of style. Yeah, but, we need it. Um, but yeah, so uh, uh, that was a pivotal time in my life. I also, I saw the Sondheim Musical Company. I saw a live version of that when I was even younger. I was probably about 10 years old. And I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. People are having sex and, you know, everyone's so adult. But so, it spoke to you. It spoke to me. Oh yeah. my God. Wow. All right. Speaking of pop culture, what was on your lunchbox when you were a kid? That was one of your other questions. Yeah. So um, I was thinking that my, you know, one of my childhood heroes was um, was H.R. Puffin stuff, who was sure. a character created by the Sid and Marty Croft. So I loved all those kind of like psychedelic early 70s um, creatures. Yeah. Um, and uh, I've kind of like, I keep looking them up. That's also the kind of the glory of the internet now is you get to kind of rediscover your 70s childhood. Those things were so wacky and weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lidsville, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what movie costume do you wish you owned so you could wear it around the house? <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, I don't really have a movie costume, but I do have a, a I, I would almost say this is a recurring dream because I think it's happened to me twice is I'm a big opera person and I twice dreamed, I believe that I was playing the lead role in um, the opera Turandot uh, by Puccini, which is like, I was like a Chinese princess. Oh, so interesting. I just, I remember myself in this, like in this dream in this like fabulous, like shiny gown with a big like headdress. And it was one of those anxiety dreams where you get shoved out on stage and you're like, I don't know the music. I don't right. know the lyric. I don't know what to do but I love this costume and then we'll just hope we'll get through it. And then the orchestra starts playing and I probably wake up. You wake up, but um, this is the worst thing that could have happened. Yeah. You're like, this is the worst thing that could have happened, but look at what I'm wearing. This is amazing. Yeah. Um, What's something you own and adore that was previously owned by someone else? Oh, well, that's a good one. Um, I, actually have an item that's related to Jimmy and Saigon and um, you know, I'll send you a photo of it as well, but it's a, it's a brocade. It's like a silk brocade jacket. And um, one of my interviews in San Diego for the film was with two of Jimmy's childhood friends um, named David and Billy. And I was talking with them. And at one point Billy left the room and came back with this beautiful embroidered Vietnamese jacket that has a map of Saigon on it. And, um, uh, it says when I die, I'll go to heaven because I spent my time in hell. Um, wow. refer to, you know, Vietnam right. war. And, um, and I said, well, what is that? And he said, well, your brother Jimmy gave it to me as a, as a gag gift. Like he bought it in Saigon and it was, it was so beautiful. And I said, well, this is amazing. And he said, well, I want you to have it. So, um, it was very touching that he gave it to me and, and, and then he has since died in the meantime, uh, Billy gave me the jacket. In the meantime, I also looked back over my brother's letters and I found a letter where he, um, relayed the whole, uh, the whole story of buying that jacket and, and sending it to Billy. So, um, it's, I love that. I love these things where, you know, threads come together in your life that you wouldn't expect they would. I love it. Well, tell people how they can see Jimmy and Saigon. Absolutely. Well, um, we are playing at the Frameline Festival in San Francisco on Sunday, June 19th at 1.15 p.m. I highly recommend trying to see it 
in a movie theater. It's a 1,400-seat movie palace. Oh, are you in the in the Castro? We're in the Castro Oh, theater. that's the most exciting yeah. thing. Yeah. Congrats. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, so that's great. Only once in the Castro on the 19th at one fifteen, But then we will be in their digital screening room, which means you can buy a ticket and watch it at home. Um, between, I believe, the 24th and the 30th of June, just at the very end. Right. Um, and if you go to, um, I believe the, the site is frameline.org. That's right. Uh, I think that's right. Yeah, frameline.org. Um, on my films, on Jimmy and Saigon's page, you can you can buy both uh, in-person tickets as well as digital tickets. And then um, we're going to be in a bunch of other festivals in um, Bentonville, Arkansas, in Des Moines, Iowa, in Nyack, New York. Um, and all of that is on our website, which is jimmyinsaigon.com. And uh, we'll, be, we'll continue to add festivals as they get added. I love it. Well, people can find out where they can see it there. And the streaming thing makes it more accessible to so many people, which I think is great. Yeah. Although I love the theatrical experience myself, but yeah. it's great yeah. to have both options. Um, final question. What do you think... What do you hope people take away from Jimmy and Saigon? What do you, how do you think it speaks to us in terms of a message or something to think about? I am kind of the kid in my family that brought um, brutal honesty to the family. Um, I tend not to, I mean, I try to be diplomatic and polite, but I tend not to dance around circumstances, situations. And um, my exec, our executive producer, we didn't talk about this, you and I, but my executive producer is Dan Savage of da- Savage Love. Fame. Oh, he's sensational. I'm a fan. Yeah. And he's actually my ex-boyfriend, my ex-partner from a long time ago. We were college boyfriends uh, in the late 80s and, and early 90s. Uh, Dan and I were recently um, on a, a Q&A for Jimmy and Saigon, uh, uh, taping a Q&A. And Dan said gay people are pretty good within families at addressing issues of um, honesty because they've had to kind of deeply go through them themselves. And so it's easier for them to sort of bring them up and get the whole family up to speed in terms of like, let's, let's be real about this. Right. They've already so, had at least one hard conversation. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's interesting Probably to me. The hardest. Yeah. 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 Um, and, um, and so, um, you know, to answer your question, I hope that people will, um, will maybe not, you know, I, I hope that people will be able to get closer to their families through honesty, I also feel like if 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 there's a life of someone who died a long time ago, don't give up on trying to find out who that person is and and honor their legacy, honor their memory, and and bring them to the world. I mean, one of the things you asked me what makes me cry, the New York Times has this thing called overlooked obituaries. Oh my God, it's so, so moving. It's people that were not, they never got an obituary in the New York Times. Um, oftentimes because they were a woman or a person of color or from another country or, you know, somehow just de- weren't, weren't deemed to be important in the early 20th century. And and so what they do is they, you know, they later on do like a full obituary for this person. I love that. I love that idea of um, of not forgetting about people. Right. Everybody has a story. Everybody mm-hmm. has things they're going through. Everything. Everybody has things that others can learn from and appreciate and relate to. And there's queer histories, too, that have been um, stifled or erased or forgotten, and we can bring them back to life. Yeah, because in a way, your, your movie's also a love story, which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, thank yeah. you so much for the conversation, and congrats on your movie. Have a blast in San Francisco. If you, you. Uh, if, you're, if you live there, go see 
Jimmy and Saigon at Frameline. And if not, you can stream it all over the country, which is awesome. That's right. All right. Thank you, Peter. This was great. Thanks. Thanks, Dennis. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Peter McDowell. Catch his movie at Frameline. It's called Jimmy in Saigon. You can learn about that at Frameline.org or at his website, JimmyInSaigon.com. All right. Speaking of movies, this happened. Last night, I went to see this classic movie called A Special Day. It's an Italian movie starring Sophia Loren and Marcello Mastriani. And it has a gay theme to it. And it was made in the 60s. I don't exactly know what year. It's shot in black and white. It's beautifully shot. Um... I had first learned about this movie because I had been in Prague and I happened to be there for the Fringe Fest. So I decided I'm just going to go see a show at the festival. And I I picked A Special Day, which is um, a stage production based on this film. And it was so beautifully done that I was like very intrigued by what the story was. And I didn't know of the movie. So I came home and I, I think I watched it on Amazon or whatever. But then when the opportunity came up to see it on a big screen yesterday, they were just showing it for one day. Um, in uh, at the Lemley here in uh, Los Angeles, and I went and checked it out, and um, it's really interesting. She plays this sort of housewife with six kids and a husband who just treats her like a maid, and uh, it's on the day that Hitler is coming to visit Rome, so the whole family except for her is out at this parade uh, celebrating this union of Germany and and Italy. Um, And he plays a fired radio announcer who lost his job because he was gay. And he's the only one left in the building. And because of this, her bird escapes into his apartment. They connect. And they end up having this sort of day together, which is, you know, she's sort of really kind of super into him, like physically and sexually. And he's just like, all right, I, you know, he, he was ready to kill himself at the beginning of the movie. So it's how they sort of come together and... I love that it wasn't horrible about gay people. Like, um, it, it, it was, uh, it, it was kind of reflective of the times, but, um, you know, and then he ended up, he ends up like kind of sleeping with her, but you could tell he's not into it. He's just doing her, doing it because she's desperate. Like, she's the sexual aggressor. It's interesting. Um, and she is so not glam in this movie, and yet there are close ups of her that are so breathtakingly beautiful, you kind of can't believe it. So, Anyway, if that's not been on your radar, that movie, um, seek it out. It's very interesting, uh, and um, it's still sort of relevant in in some ways, especially with the way that fascism and Nazism are sort of on the rise all around them, and they're they're connecting in the midst of all this craziness. All right, that's enough for this week. Before I let you go, I want to give a shout-out to AJ Sousa for mixing the episodes, and J.B. Bursey gives me a lot of additional technical support, so thank you. My theme music is composed by Mark Daniels, and it's licensed through Placement Music. We'll see you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye!